This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we'll be chatting with Stephen Sukup. Stephen is the author of the book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business, from Encounter Books. Stephen is the senior commentator, vice president, and publisher of The Political Forum, an independent research provider that delivers research and consulting services to the institutional investment community with an emphasis on economic, social, political, and geopolitical events likely to have an impact on the financial markets in the United States and abroad. He's also the director of the Political Forum Institute, a nonprofit educational organization dedicated to creating and preserving community, primarily among those who earn their living and create wealth for the nation through the capital markets. Sukup has followed politics and federal regulatory policy for the financial community since 1996, when he joined the award-winning Washington Research Office of Prudential Securities. He's also a fellow in culture and the economy at the Culture of Life Foundation. Also joining us on the podcast is Peter Spence, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. Peter, why don't you get us started? Why did you write this book? And what specifically led you to dive into the dictatorship of woke capital? Well, <clears throat> I have worked uh, for 25 years, uh, my entire professional career uh, in the financial services world and specifically at the nexus of Washington and Wall Street, uh, providing research and commentary uh, on Washington, on social, political and economic phenomena specifically related to Washington, uh, to Wall Street. And over the last 10 years or so, uh, I've seen a pretty dramatic shift in uh, the political affiliations and the political demands made by Wall Street. Um, Wall Street has moved pretty aggressively to the cultural left. Uh, that much is pretty clear. Um, what its implications were uh, for the capital markets, for uh, American big business uh, for the economy and for American society more generally uh, began to be more of an interest to me over the past five or so years. And in the past couple of years, it's become clear that the big part of what is happening here is uh, an attempt to inject political beliefs uh, and political actions into the capital markets, which I think is a very, very risky proposition. So what's the best way to describe the concept of woke capital to the average citizen? And can you explain the difference between the old-fashioned term big business and the newer term woke capital? Well, woke capital, the, the definition that I use is um, a top-down anti-democratic strategy being employed by some of the biggest and best-known names in American business to change the way American business functions uh, to change the definition of capitalism, and to change forever the relationship between the citizen and the state. Um, the difference between big business uh, and woke capital is that woke capital is overtly and aggressively political and 
overtly and aggressively willing to undermine the will of the people. Now, this this is Garrett. Steve, you, your argument, just to speed to the end of the book, is that you'd like to see a return to a more neutral approach from uh, uh, actors in the business community and in, and in finance towards looking more towards um, what are the traditional metrics for um, measuring a company's value. Um, and yet I can't get over uh, the notion that what companies have always done, though, is try to look at more holistic uh, valuations for either the uh, investments that they're making um, or in the, you know, just the business climate in which they're operating. Um, what, what, though, is your, your, your principal concern with these new metrics? Uh, my principal concern with the new metrics is that they uh, impose a uniform, top-down uh, belief system uh, on uh, American business in order to compel them to embrace what is, by and large, uh, a political perspective. Um, I would prefer... Uh, if companies were allowed to navigate politics, uh, navigate the administrative state, uh, navigate the relation, their relationship with Washington uh, without being coerced uh, by activists, without being coerced by activist shareholders and activist asset managers, uh, to uh, operate in uh, the environment, whatever it may be, uh, based on their own decisions uh, as to what is in the best interest of the company and its uh, shareholders. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the perniciousness of this drive, it, it, it comes from the largest uh, uh, and the most influential uh, firms adopting this, um, uh, this approach, right? I, I don't think you'd have as, as many qualms with perhaps more boutique um, private equity shops or um, more uh, you know, maybe like a Ben and Jerry's before it got bought out by Unilever, um, having a, a more woke ethic. You know, your your concern is that you have these these giant multinational corporations which have so many you know concerns, but they've elevated um, woke capital to the level of um, you know the other uh, you know decision making metrics uh, that they classically had, right? Yes. Um, for example. Uh, we all know what is happening in Georgia right now, uh, where uh, a large number of CEOs of large, uh, massive American businesses have said that they don't agree with uh, the will of the people, as expressed by its elected, as expressed by their elected representatives, uh, to determine what the policy should be for the state. Um, th that's a pretty obvious uh, example. But behind the scenes, uh, Governor Kemp's office just the other day released information that said that they had been negotiating with and had kept Delta Airlines uh, informed of their decisions and the progress of, of the bill throughout the process. And the fact of the matter is that this has nothing to do uh, with Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines should not be involved in this even behind the scenes. Um, this is something that has, has become pervasive even among conservatives and even among those who appear to be uh, standing up to big business. The idea that, that Delta should have a say uh, in the way legislation is uh, created in the state of Georgia, a say that the people have no um, recourse to change, uh, is, is frankly disturbing.
why and how exactly has big business been captured by the left? Can it be attributed to the influence and pressure from the media, from HR departments, maybe from academia's influence on young employees who then make their way up the corporate ladder? Well, I, I think there are several different uh, ways to look at this, and there are several different aspects to how uh, government has, or how big business has been uh, taken over uh, by woke capital. Um, there are three pressure sources uh, on American business. Uh, some of the pressure on business comes from the bottom up, as you mentioned, which would include employees who are demanding that they're, that the executives of the company uh, take the company in certain directions. I think we saw that uh, in Georgia with Delta. We've seen that at Amazon uh, with respect to how they behave to Parler. Uh, these were largely um, ground or bottom up uh, pushes from employees to have uh, their corporate leaders uh, behave in a certain way. Uh, pressure also comes from the top down. Uh, we have a number of uh, executives of large corporations who are very politically oriented and believe very strongly in uh, what we would call the cultural left and the beliefs of the cultural left, and, and they pressure the company uh, to behave in certain ways. Uh, and then there, there's pressure that comes from the outside in, um, and that's largely pressure uh, from activists, uh, but also from media, uh, from activist shareholders, from activist asset managers uh, that that can influence the way the, corp the company behaves as well. So I, I think corporations are being squeezed uh, from all three directions, and, and it's causing them uh, simply to throw up their hands and say, look, we'll do what you want, just, you know, leave us alone. You know, I, I found in, in the retrospectives on the 2020 election, one of the most notable shifts were the uh, changes in, in the uh, voting demographics among the professional managerial class who largely comprise the um, upper middle class in uh, suburbia and in, and in, and in the cities. Uh, the cities, right, they've always voted Democratic, but a notable shift, um, especially from 2012, not just 2016 to 2020, but from 2012 to, to 2020, where these suburbs, especially in um, the, the, the red states, uh, or traditionally thought of as red states, and a lot of these employees, they they are who make up the uh, the middle and and the senior management of a lot of these larger companies. To what extent have their own perhaps shifting political views now bled over into their um, views on uh, you know, corporate stewardship and and what their responsibilities are? And maybe is it you know do you think this is more of a cultural or socio um, sociological phenomenon than a you know a dollars and cents thing? Well, certainly uh, there is a distinct cultural impact. Um, the argument that I make in the first half of, uh, of the dictatorship of woke capital is that what we are seeing today is the result of, of two historical trends uh, that have been uh, acting on uh, the culture in Western civilization for probably the last 150 years or so. And one of those uh, trends is the trend uh, of all institutions uh, in the West to move more and more to embrace the cultural left. Uh, that's entertainment, that's media, that's uh, mainstream religion, uh, and most notably that's education and higher education in particular. Uh, so given that 
higher education has become a, a bastion of, of cultural leftist thinking and of the uh, very aggressively um, anti-realist cultural left. Uh, I, I think it's been, uh, it was probably inevitable uh, that this would trickle down into business eventually. Uh, and I, I think as we move forward, as long as uh, American higher education continues to move in the direction that it is, I think American business probably will uh, as well, because the, the the people that the universities produce uh, will uh, move into business and they will largely have been uh, indoctrinated with uh, this anti-realist, uh, aggressive um, cultural leftism. So one of the biggest things emphasized in the book is the ESG movement, which you describe as, quote, an investment trend focused on environmental, social, and governance matters in assessing a company's long-term value. Can you talk a little bit about the impact this movement is having on the financial world, with Wall Street having the power to withhold investing in companies who don't go along with the ESG, with the ESG movement? Well, you know, what's interesting is, is that most of Wall Street is not withholding funds. Uh, they're actually engaging with their funds. Uh, traditionally, socially mm. responsible investing uh, was directed at uh, people on all sides of the political realm uh, who had all sorts of different beliefs, whereby uh, it allowed people to determine for themselves what corporations uh, they did or did not want to invest in based on their values. If, for example, you were running the funds for the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, you would want to avoid companies that were involved in uh, abortion or that gave money to Planned Parenthood, etc. You were able to screen those companies out and withhold funds from them. Uh, it was a bipartisan, a very voluntary uh, system. Over the past 10 years or so, the DSG movement has, has replaced traditional socially responsible investing. Uh, and ESG is much more aggressive and much more coercive. Uh, instead of withholding funds uh, from companies whose uh, practices conflict with one's values, uh, the activist investors, including activist asset managers, uh, purposefully pressure the corporation to change their behavior. And if they do not change their behavior, then these activists will attempt to change the corporation itself, uh, either by voting in uh, new uh, rules for the company uh, at the annual annual general meeting, or by voting against directors and executives, uh, possibly costing some people their jobs. Uh, so this ESG is a much more coercive movement. And, and instead of withholding funds, they use the funds to engage with the companies and to push the companies in a certain political direction. And you, you think that the ESG move is, is sort of the, the path of least resistance, and that's why it's so popular, right? Because there's, 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 a very, there's very much a threshold question of having to advance this in a transparent and, and, and a public way, whereas with ESG, it's almost like the, the decisions made behind closed doors and then it's pronounced in a in a an annual report, or it's pronounced at a it's like at a press conference or something. And now it's you know it's like the train's out of the station. Uh, you better get on it while it's moving. Am I am I am I am I off base there? No, I I think that you're probably pretty right about that. Uh, ESG is uh, well right now ESG is incredibly popular. 
um, in large part because uh, the returns on investment that all investors are, are making uh, is significant and it's difficult to lose money. Uh, it's difficult not to make a ton of money. And so ESG uh, promises uh, that it can change the world uh, without changing uh, profits, without changing return on investment. And it's been able to do so uh, in large part because, you know, uh, the Fed and the European Central Bank and the Bank of England continue to crank out money uh, constantly. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, the easy access to practically zero interest funds ha has enabled these companies to say, look, we're, we're making changes and there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, because clearly we're doing well. Uh, so this is this is a very uh, difficult time to try and push back against ESG because uh, the ESG uh, advocates can say, I don't understand what you're talking about. We're we're actually helping companies and, and our profits and our returns on investment uh, clearly show that. Um, so it's a, it's a very uh, it, it's a complicated moment and a complicated movement uh, and and it's very much uh, exacerbated. All of this is very much exacerbated uh, by uh, easy money. Yeah, one of the more persuasive parts in your book is how these leaders of um, the large uh, you know, f finance firms like BlackRock, Larry Fink, uh, they they're using ESG, or at least the, the guise of ESG, as a way in a form of morally therapeutic um, uh, deism to atone for what they perceive as uh, the sins of capitalism. And so they, they use these, uh, you know, these, 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 these terms of uh, like value, like values investing, um, and then uh, investment in, in you know, ESG style um, uh, ways to uh, perhaps purify what they're doing by investing in China and place and, and, and in causes that uh, they, uh, you know, they may have used to you know, amass their fortunes. But now that they've already made their fortunes, um, this is the way that they can um, uh, atone for their for their previous sins, as it were. Yeah, well, I definitely think that there's uh, that that's that's part of the issue. Um, you have Larry Fink, who is a billionaire, uh, who advocates now on behalf of uh, what can only be, des be described as left-wing cultural policies. Uh, and, and a big part of the reason for that is because that alleviates his guilt over being a billionaire. Um, ESG is in many ways sort of the modern version of buying indulgences. Uh, it's a way for mm -hmm. these uh, billionaires and centimillionaires uh, to look at the money that they've made and say, well, the money's one thing, but now uh, we need to give back. And by give back, they mean uh, by uh, helping to create a better world, not by giving back some actual money. They want to keep the money, uh, but they want the grace <laughs> on the cheap as well. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating uh, case study in in sort of collective psychology, um, and and how few are are willing to dissent from that um, orthodoxy. That actually takes us to our next question. Um, uh, the big corporations that you talk about in the book compete with each other on practically every little thing there is to compete on, and yet they all seem to be singing in unison now on the woke issues that have suddenly become so important to them. 
to what extent is this driven by a sincere investment in these causes? Um, and to what extent, though, uh, could it be driven by a fear of what may happen to them if they dissent from this um, ever unstable work, woke orthodoxy? Well, I, I think we have uh, in American big business and in American capital markets, we have probably three types uh, of people who are making these these decisions to, to line up with uh, ESG and political values. Um, the first is a true believer. Uh, I think Larry Fink, for example, is a true believer. He thinks uh, that he and he alone uh, understands how to get from here to there, how to create uh, this utopia of a you know a, a zero carbon future without hurting uh, American business, without hurting the American economy. Economy. Uh, he's a Gnostic uh, who who firmly believes that he's got the answer and no one else does. Um, in addition to that, we, we have those who are opportunists. Uh, and in the book, I single out Jamie Dimon uh, at uh, J.P. Morgan uh, as being more in, you know, more of an opportunist than a true believer in that he sees how successful this has been for Fink. And he sees how this is the way uh, that uh, American business is moving at this particular moment and, and has decided to get on board with it uh, simply uh, to increase profits. Um, I, I compare him to uh, to St. Augustine in uh, the introduction to the book in that, you know, he wants to be made holy, but just not yet. Um, he wants to make a few more bucks before he's before he becomes a true believer. Um, but then I would say the vast majority uh, of, of business executives are scared to death. They're scared of their employees. Uh, they're scared of activists. They're scared of saying something that might be misinterpreted and losing their jobs. Uh, and, and they're scared of these these active uh, these very aggressive um, asset managers who are pushing them in a certain direction, uh, they know that to cross uh, Larry Fink or to cross any of the big three passive asset management firms uh, would potentially put them in jeopardy of losing their job and losing their company. Right, right, right. Yeah, that that I think was one of the one of the the more um, disturbing. Uh, takeaways from your book that we really do have a concentration of decision making here, um, and just institutional wherewithal is 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 connected to it, right? I mean, you said that you know you have Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock just directing so many of these uh, decisions now through the uh, widespread proliferation of mass ownership. Oh, sorry, right, widespread proliferation of ETFs and then the mass ownership of ETFs. Um, and I thought one of the more just disturbing but also revealing moments of your book was when you recounted last March as COVID was tanking the market and public health authorities were unable to provide firm guidance, the Fed realized that it did not have the manpower to handle the new corporate lending program that it was starting. So in classic Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste, BlackRock and Larry Fink stepped in to take over the program at the request of the Fed, but in doing so, it gained the ability to implement its ESG philosophy. Was this a unique case, or I mean, are we now seeing woke capital's ability to you know infiltrate even you know government decision making? Um, should we be worried? Uh, well, I, definitely, we should be worried. Um, there have been uh, charges. Uh, thrown around uh, over the past uh, several months, and uh, you know, even the past year since since, since COVID began, uh, that we're more and more moving to a, a corporatist state. 
that this is, you know, collusion of big government and big business uh, to uh, operate in what they believe is the best interest of the nation while cutting uh, the people uh, out of the process. I would argue that we're moving, in fact, towards a corporatocratic state rather than a corporatist state, which implies that business is running running the show uh, rather than government. And, and I think that that example uh, of BlackRock being brought in to handle what the Fed couldn't uh, is a perfect example of, of why uh, this is the case, that uh, business is running this and that we're actually more corporatocratic than we are corporatist. Uh, so I, I think that that's certainly something to worry about. Um, it is very uh, disconcerting uh, to think that the government has so much power. Uh, and then you add on to the fact that they're outsourcing a lot of that power uh, to people whose views are hostile to at least uh, half of the people in the country, I, I think it is very troubling. Are there any specific policy solutions that you would like to see implemented uh, either at a state or federal level to keep corporations from forcing their political views on normal citizens. Uh, as you mentioned, we've seen the Georgia state legislature push back on Delta's criticism of their voting laws by repealing one of their tax breaks. Do you think this is a, do you think this type of approach is a good one in the long term for conservatives to try to utilize? Well, I, I think there, yeah, there are two answers uh, to, to the question there. The first, I'll, I'll deal with the second first, which is uh, the, using the tax code to punish corporations. I, I find that uh, to be troubling. Um, for, you know, at least 40 years, uh, conservatives have made the case uh, that um, lower taxes uh, is, it, are better for uh, business uh, and that what's better for business is better for uh, the economy and for the country because it provides jobs. Uh, and, and now at this point uh, to say, look, we're going to use the tax code. We're going to advocate for higher corporate taxes. We're going to eliminate the breaks that we gave you to come to, to our state uh, to bring jobs. To, to use that, I, I think, is sort of uh, undermines the entire argument of the, of the last 40 years. It says, OK, fine. We believe that low taxes uh, is important for uh business, but we're going to violate our principles to punish them, uh, which means we're punishing workers as well. So I, I think that's a very risky thing to do. Uh, it, you know, I know that there are advocates out there uh, for uh, such plans, uh, but personally, I think there are better ways to handle it. Uh, one of the policy solutions uh, that I would offer and that I would advocate uh, is for these large passive asset management firms to be compelled to uh, take the pulse of and listen to the uh, input from uh, their fund owners. Um, traditionally, if you own a stock, uh, you get to vote uh, right. the, the value of that stock. You have certain rights uh, as a shareholder. Um, when you invest in a mutual fund and any of these big ETFs, uh, you lose that right, and that right is taken from you, uh, and the, the fund manager votes your rights. Uh, and at this point, uh, there is no mechanism set up for the owners of these funds to have any input whatsoever. So when I say Larry Fink has 
uh, $9 trillion in assets under management. What I mean is that he has $9 trillion of our money uh, that's been put in his funds uh, that he can direct and that his fund managers can control and that we have no input whatsoever uh, into, into how that they're doing that. Um, so he is essentially usurping our rights as shareholders uh, to use for his political ends. Um, and, and that's something that I think can be corrected uh, through legislation or through regulation uh, to force these uh, large funds, ETFs, et cetera, uh, to provide some sort of mechanism to restore uh, at least some semblance of uh, shareholder rights uh, to the fund owners. Uh, and I think that that would have a, a very large impact uh, on uh, the way this is this the way that these funds are managed and the way that woke capital is operating in our capital markets. Well, practically speaking, I think what what you've just offered as, as a response to Peter's first question is 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 quite sensible. But I do want to gently push back on on your initial comments on the utility of challenging corporations at specific junctures. So if you can meet them on the realm of you know, the tax breaks that they might be receiving from a state or locality uh, and sort of push back on the fear that uh, they might be getting from one side of the, uh, you know, of, of, of the political spectrum, uh, it, it, yeah, if, if you look at these as you know, sort of tit for tat um, you know, game theory in, through a tit for tat game theory um, lens, I mean, you you don't want there to be you know sort of the the automatic deference to you know the the, the liberal cause you know if you, if you can create a justifiable threat um, to um, to push back uh, you know using state action um, I think you might actually get a, a a more favorable or at least this is the thinking of of some of those um, you know con conservative activists and and state legislators uh, you'll make them think twice if you if you can you know credibly Threaten state action um, for these types of um, decisions, and the th and the thinking the thinking can be analogized right to having a broad principle of let's say you know free trade in the foreign policy realm, but then if you see a bad actor, maybe China or um, any other nation that might be you know breaking um, international trade agreements, you have to respond in kind, or else it's an empty threat. Uh, but how do you respond to that? Well, I don't disagree with you that there has to be some sort of response uh, from the state. I, I get uncomfortable with using the tax code uh, to punish uh, corporations. Uh, that makes me uh, uneasy. Um, but uh, what the state should do, I think, is probably going to vary from situation to situation. Um, again, uh, to go back to Georgia, I, I, I think that uh, the state there probably brought some of this on themselves uh, in that they decided that it was pro appropriate to bring big corporations into the policy-making uh, process from the beginning. Um, and, and so I'm a little less sympathetic uh, to them at, at this point, uh, you know, with their uh, insistence that the corporations had betrayed them. Um, if they hadn't involved them in the first place, then you know, perhaps it wouldn't be as important uh, now that they're taking a different stance. Um, but yeah, I, the, the state has to have some ability to push back. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, my preference would be to 
minimize uh, the political part of this in large part because I would like to see uh, you know a minimization of politics uh, in uh, capital markets and in corporate behavior uh, just overall. Uh, so you know I, I'm not sure I can offer a, a perfect solution. Uh, for states to respond or for the federal government to respond. Uh, but at the same time, I, I would prefer uh, to avoid using the tax code uh, you know, to uh, punish companies. Hmm. Now, given the populist and anti-elitist trends, though, in the present-day conservative movement, should we, as you know, thoughtful right-of-center folk, ask ourselves if the movement away from deference to the well-being of big corporations uh, and its kind of pri uh, priority or privilege among uh, among right-leaning politicians, is that really a bad thing? Well, not necessarily. Um, you know, as I said, I, I think that we, we live in a corporatocratic state, uh, and this uh, is not something that sprung up in the, you know, three months that... Uh, Joe Biden has been president. This is mm -hmm. this is something that has been uh, advancing in American politics for decades. Uh, so I think that uh, a response to uh, this uh, our government's relationship with corporations is is entirely appropriate. Uh, and for conservatives to move away from that, I think would would probably be fine. Uh, I just would like to see it it, it applied. Uh, in a rational, consistent manner to all corporations, not just to a handful of them uh, that happen to be on our bad side at this point. But yeah, I, I don't disagree with you that it would be a good thing uh, to move in a less uh, aggressively corporatist or corporatocratic way. I, I think that the government probably uh, should do that. Um, and whether or not corporations were, were going woke and trying to punish uh, mm -hmm. state governments for, for certain behavior, uh, I, I think that would be probably in our in our benefit as, as a nation as well. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So what? Yeah. So what kind of qualified support would you then want thoughtful citizens and then their their public uh, representatives? What kind of uh, what kind of direction? Would you like to have uh, voiced? Because I think, as you as you've made so clear in your book, it's just it's so um, it's so amorphous. You know, the direction that woke capital will will will, will take. I mean, the the nexus between the the philanthropy world and the activist world, and then you know those ideas that get accepted uh, into the um, uh, into the decision making of of you know, uh, the, the ESG um, advocates and high finance, it's ever shifting. But, you know, if there are some set of broad principles, you know, that you could um, rally behind for qualified support, would it, would it be just a, a re-expression of your, of your neutrality um, goal that you express at the end of the book? Or are there some, maybe some more, um, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe some, some, some more substantive um uh, you know, m measures that, that you think would be part of, you know, qualified support for, for large businesses? Well, yeah, it's, it's certainly pushing back uh, towards neutrality would, would be the overall sort of uh, philosophical goal. Uh, so I, I think there are concrete solutions. I, I think that the way to do that is, is to apply uh, general principles uh, to uh, corporations uh, as a whole. Um, 
that's one example. Um, I, I think that there can be other uh, there can be other policies that would uh, direct corporations in a way that would be less overtly political and more uh, overtly uh, patriotic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I, I think that we can do things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the most thing the most important thing though is is consistent application uh, across. Uh, the corporate spectrum. Yeah, you bring up you you bring up in uh, a few of your case studies towards the end of the book on um, this um, just kind of uh, uh, cognitive dissonance of of companies like Amazon and Disney uh, when they espouse these you know high-minded principles at home, but then they have business practices with um, you know foreign countries, China in particular, which just fly in the face of everything that they that they seem to be espousing. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit more, and Amazon. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about you know the specific um, hypocrisy or the specific and the specific threats that you know you have from um, companies like Disney, Amazon, um, Apple, right? And and you know how it how it kind of you know undermines um, or and, and uh, some of the high-minded rhetoric that they employ. Sure. Um, what Apple and Disney uh, are for. Uh, all intents and purposes, um, the same company. Uh, they don't uh, make the same products and they don't deliver the same uh, end results, but uh, they have taken very much the same strategy uh, and have been pushed in the same direction by the same people uh, for the past probably decade, decade and a half. Um, Lorene Powell Jobs, for example, uh, who is the widow of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was uh, for a long time the largest single shareholder of Disney stock. Um, Bob Iger, who was the chairman of Disney, uh, the CEO of Disney, uh, sat on the board of directors of Apple for a long time, for probably a decade as well. And, and as much as said that if, he, if Steve Jobs had lived, that he believes the two companies would be merged at this point. So both of these companies have taken uh, a very similar uh, almost uh, identical strategy uh, for expanding their business and preparing for the future. Uh, and, and that uh, includes very heavy involvement uh, in the People's Republic of China. Uh, with respect to Apple, um, the People's Republic of China would not be where it is right now uh, without its partnership with Apple, and Apple would not be where it is right now without its partnership with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, mm -hmm. Apple has been uh, very aggressive about moving production uh, and moving um, all of its uh, uh, labor uh, issues into the People's Republic of China. Um, so it, it's, it's very well connected. Um, and it's a big deal for the Chinese as well because Apple provides a ton of jobs. Um, the problem is that at home, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, is is very much uh, an environmentalist and very much a social justice warrior. Um, he there is there's not a single uh, social justice issue that that gains headlines uh, that Tim Cook isn't right there to donate uh, his shareholders' money to try try and alleviate. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 additionally, Apple claims to be totally uh, carbon neutral. Um, 
when you take the trip across the Pacific Ocean to the People's Republic of China, though, uh, you find that most of the energy expended in the creation and distribution uh, of Apple's products is, is used by their um, subcontractors who are located in Taiwan or in China and who are not quite as green uh, as Apple claims to be. Uh, additionally, um, since Apple is, or since China is Apple's second largest market and its single largest uh, labor force, um, Tim Cook has a tendency to do what uh, the Chinese Communist Party asks of him. In the uh, past couple of years, when protesters uh, were pushing back against uh, Chinese Communist uh, incursions into Hong Kong, uh, the uh, Communist Party asked Apple to remove certain apps from its app store because these apps were being used by the protesters to organize uh, and to push back against the CCP. Uh, and Tim Cook, you know, obliged. Uh, Apple removed those apps from the app store. Uh, so, you know, it clearly there is a contradiction in how these uh, some of these very woke corporations behave at home and how they behave uh, in other places, particularly in China. Um, and I, I think that undermines uh, both their case to being uh, a morally or ethically superior uh, investment choice or uh, consumer choice. And it also undermines uh, the uh, ability uh, of the American government to push for uh, certain standards and certain behaviors uh, with our trading partners throughout the globe. We're pardon me, throughout the world. So what do you think the next frontier is for woke capital that the left is targeting after big corporations in finance? And then what tools does the right have to push back? Well, uh, the, the woke, uh, the forces of woke, the forces of cultural leftism uh, have very much taken I, I think as much as they can uh, of uh, Western societies and particularly American society, um, the only bastion left was big business. Um, and so I, I think that once they've complete, if they are allowed to completely uh, take big business, that they will feel as if they've, they've been uh, thoroughly successful uh, in you know, Gramscian theory or uh, the Frankfurt School theory, what comes next then is the revolution. Um, once you've changed the culture completely, uh, then the revolution uh, is more likely to occur. Um, I think that the overwhelming majority, uh, 90 plus percent uh, of American Americans who embrace uh, cultural leftism, and particularly American businesses who embrace cultural leftism, have have forgotten or never knew that that's that that's the ultimate goal is by changing the culture to advance a revolution. So um, I, I think that we are playing uh, with fire, um, and although I don't think the revolution is you know a communist revolution is something that's going to happen, um, certainly. Uh, the Marxists, uh, the post-World War I Marxists were right about how changing uh, the culture uh, can thoroughly change a people uh, and thoroughly change a nation. Uh, so I, I think that um, what comes next is, is probably a, a more aggressive form of uh, 
cultural leftist coercion, um, whether that's, you know, moving in the direction of total surveillance, like is the case in the People's Republic of China, uh, or if it's, uh, you know, moving in the direction of, uh, you know, having uh, neighbors snitch on other neighbors uh, for their violations of, you know, what is what is poli politically acceptable. Well, you know, I'm not sure where it goes, uh, but certainly I think it, it involves ramping up uh, the um, the surveillance nature uh, of the enforcement of these woke values. Um, and that's particularly the case if American business uh, goes in that same direction. Um, as far as the tools that conservatives might have to push back, um, right now, I, I think that the biggest tool that we have is the fact that we are um, able to recognize uh, what is coming, what is happening, what's being done, and, and be willing to uh, organize our responses on uh, a community level. Uh, I think community and uh, local responses to this are going to be incredibly important uh, over the next 10, 20 years. Um, you know, Russell Kirk was right uh, that what conservatives should focus on uh, is what's closest to them, uh, their community. And I think that we're going to have to utilize that uh, for some time uh, to advance uh, our response uh, to the uh, heavy handedness uh, of the cultural left. Um, in my professional work uh, over the last 25 years, I've always made the argument that Washington is not uh, where the biggest battles of the day are fought, uh, that those battles are fought in uh, the states, in the cities, in the towns, in the neighborhoods, in the churches, in the schools, and in the families. Washington is only where we keep score. Uh, so I think that the virtue that conservatives have and, and that the strength that they have is that they understand uh, that by keeping their families directed in the right way and keeping their schools and their neighborhoods and their churches uh, moving in uh, a direction of unification uh, of belief and purpose uh, to sort of insulate themselves uh, from the imposition of different values from the national level, I, I think is what's going to be our strength and our saving grace. Well, uh, Steve, with the way you were describing the next phase for uh, for the left in uh, continuing to spread the uh, the gospel of woke capital, I'm, I'm reminded of Woody Allen's line that I'm sorry I couldn't leave you with something positive. Will you accept two negatives instead? <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's truly scary. Um, but your book is just you know, it's so timely, um, and it's, it, it's really a clarion call. Um, to our listeners, uh, it's The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business uh, from Encounter Books. Um, Steve, we, uh, we wish you so well, and... Um, I mean, gosh, I hope uh, I hope we're not here next year um, talking about how uh, this book was just uh, you know naive or it it, it didn't um, it didn't fully um, uh, you know predict the uh, the extent to which woke capital would um, capture our institutions. But um, until then, thank you so much for um, uh, for your time 
and um, we'll make uh, we'll make available on our website for our listeners um, all the different ways uh, they can purchase your book. Um, and uh, until next time. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.